I always think about that. Um, you know, everything doesn't have to be spectacular to be spiritual. And, uh, you know, just Bob's response sometimes, uh, we can be naturally supernatural, just kind of doing life and think we sense something or do something, go with it. You may sense a need to pray for somebody. That day, by the way, we did not have an altar call. So it wasn't like, hey, the altar's open. Hey, Cody, you want to come forward for prayer? It just Bob sent something that came forward for prayer, and, and uh, God was up to something. So I've never found anybody yet that got mad at me if I felt like, I feel like I should pray for you, and have them go, well, how dare you? You know, usually it's like, okay, go ahead. So even if you miss God, how can you miss God by praying for somebody? So amen. Well, we're going to go to the Word, and we're on this topic, and I think it's a very critical topic. Very, very critical. It's, it's got to be one of the most foundational truths in the scripture because it reveals uh, the gospel. It reveals who we are in Christ. And I feel like when we don't know these things and we don't really get them locked inside us, we kind of, as I've mentioned before, we live life off balance, a little out of kilter, and we're not really getting the traction we need to because we need to come from a place of who we are and we need to understand who we are in Christ and how we got there and who's responsible for it and all those things so we can really get a handle on what we have in Christ. So I want to look at this uh, text from, from Paul, a guy who wrote a big piece of the New Testament, lots of books, and he's writing to the Corinthians, and he writes to these Corinthians, and he says, can you throw it up on the back screen too? Uh, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, now did you catch that phrase? Very important. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, just didn't say if anyone's trying to turn over a new leaf or, or set some really great New Year's resolutions. He said, if anyone is in Christ, so being a Christian, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Does it say it's going to come someday? No, it says it has come. The new creation has come. The old has gone. You get this very present tense. The old has gone. The new is here, exclamation point. The new is here. All this is from whom? From God. So did you or I manufacture it or create it or strategize it or do any of this? No, this is all from God. Let that soak in a little because it's just human nature. We want to do something. I get that. Remember the verse I've been quoting forever. What works must we do? Jesus said, do works that will last for eternal life. And he said, what works must we do? And Jesus said, here's the work God requires. Believe in the one he has sent. Hmm, interesting. So the new is here. All this is from God, that God was reconciling the world to himself in whom? In Christ, in Jesus. Again, not just, hey, you know, we're all trying to do the best we can. So, no, in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. Let that sink in. Not counting people's sins against them. All of us here have committed plenty of sins. How many is God counting against you? None. Is that sinking in? None. Yeah, but you don't know what... It didn't qualify it, did it? It said none. Counting none of these sins against them. God made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. What do we got, like four verses here and how powerful these are? Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus had never sinned. God made him sin. He took our sin and placed it on Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, that would be a sin offering or a scapegoat. There's two different ways they got rid of the sins of the people. So Jesus, all of our sin was placed on Jesus and said, he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that in him, we keep seeing that in him. Jesus is very important to this passage. Don't, Don't believe, well, you know, as long as you believe something sincerely, that's good. No, everything about the scripture is Jesus, Jesus. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become. Were we naturally the righteousness of God? No. We became. So God took our sin and placed it on Jesus. And he took Jesus' righteousness and placed it on us. Pretty good deal, don't you think? Maybe this is the gospel we ought to teach. Maybe this is what we ought to tell people. Maybe that might get people to go, wow, I kind of like that. But I haven't been so thrilled about all the church rules and regulations and all that. And by the way, I believe there's a code of conduct for believers to live by. But I'm telling you, the base core of the message, the simplicity of the gospel is, is this right here that we're looking at. And so I want us to think about this. We are new creations or new creatures. Some translations say I like both of them. We're new creations in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. It's here now. We are, the, we are sinless, and we are the righteousness of God. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, let's just ask some questions. Not trick questions. I hate trick questions. I mean, I can look dumb enough by myself without somebody trying to trick me with a question. So these aren't trick questions. But I want to ask you this. Just based on what we read in the Scripture, if I'm a new creation in Jesus, can I be any newer? No. There's not the... It's not like your phones, you know, there's a new model coming out every six months, so you buy a new one. There's no upgrade. Jesus is the ultimate upgrade. There's nothing beyond him. So if we're new in Jesus, we can't get any newer or any more new. Can't happen. If all of our sins are forgiven, and by the way, you go to any Christian denomination that loves Jesus and teaches the word, there'll be somewhere in there about the forgiveness of sins, and there'll be a phrase that's often said by preachers and teachers that we are forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. We're forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And although every major denomination that loves Jesus teaches that, there's not a whole lot of people who really believe that. That really all of our sins, I mean, past, present, and future, that's what, that's what the scripture says. So if, if all of my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, can I be any more sinless? No, I, I can't be. They're, they're gone. It's not like, well, let's scrape down the bottom of the bucket and see if there's something left in there. No, they're all gone. They're all gone. So now, his righteousness has been placed upon me. I have the righteousness of Jesus if I'm in Christ. So now I ask another question. Can I be any more righteous? I can't. In fact, it would be insulting. Wouldn't that if you really think about it like, well, now, Tracy, it's that and that and what? How am I going to improve upon you know, the righteousness of, of Christ. Yeah, but you got that bad habit. Okay, so if I break the bad habit, will my righteousness increase a level? Will Jesus have been bumped up a level? Well, what if I never uh, overcome that habit? Will, will, will Jesus' righteousness be diminished a level? No, it, it's his righteousness, and that's what we're clothed in. And so there's this beautiful truth that we look in the Scripture, and, and what I want to encourage us to do is I want us to live life as new creations. And so I just want to call this new creation living. This is new creation living. All of us live life from some kind of a 
a baseline. For, for instance, there's people that woke up around the world today who are incredibly rich and affluent. They woke up from that perspective. They didn't wake up this morning wondering if there'd be a car they could drive. They didn't wake up this morning wondering if the heat was going to be shut off. They didn't wake up this morning wondering if they were going to have food. They didn't wake up. They didn't wake up with any of those worries because they came from a place of affluence. But other people who didn't come from that place woke up this morning wondering if they would have a meal today, wondering if they would have transportation, wonder if they would have shelter, wonder if they would get evicted from their home. They're different places of living. We need to come from a place of living that I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It, it's happened right now. My sins are forgiven. They're gone. They're forgotten. God remembers them no more. Blessed is the one whom God does not count his sins against him. This is the Bible. So according to the Bible, not according to the poor teaching that we might have, not according to our, our bad understanding, not according to our guilt and our shame and our regret for how we've lived, not according to any of those things, but according to the Bible, if you are a Christian right here, right now, in this place, at this moment, you are sinless, as holy, as beautiful, as pure, as righteous, as forgiven as you ever will be. Ever will be. Now, you can say, I know myself too well. You don't even know yourself as well as God knows you. And he says he loves you and you're forgiven in Christ. There's this whole concept of being a new creation. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Lucille Ball. I'm just kind of curious to take a poll here. Lucille Ball was actually on the scene and, you know, had great notoriety. I know it's going to shock you, even before I was born. Okay, so even before I was born. But I know who Lucille Ball is. Now, is there anyone here who has heard, you have heard of Lucille Ball or I Love Lucy or The Lucy Show? Would you raise your hand up high? I want to see. And if you haven't ever heard of it, that, that's okay. Okay, so almost everyone here has heard of Lucille Ball, even though, you know, her heyday predated many of you in the room today. But you can still watch her because her shows are iconic. That's why they're, they're on all kinds of different channels being shown. Well, I don't know if you know this about Lucille Ball, but she was created and then became a new creation. There was a sculptor who was commissioned to honor the life of Lucille Ball. And so this, this guy took and he... He worked on this sculpture from this iconic scene out of one of Lucy's episodes where she was doing a commercial. I'm just curious if you remember this. She was doing a commercial for Vita Mita Vegemin. Does anybody remember that? Okay. Vita Mita Vegemin. She was doing a commercial for it. It was the magical elixir that if you took this, you would be well. You would, it would cure everything. That was actually uh, filmed in 1952. And so this guy was to take... Uh, a scene from that and recreate a, a bronze a statue, life-size statue of, of Lucille Ball and to be placed in the Lucille Ball Park, you know, like where you take picnics and do all that, not a ballpark, but in a park, in her hometown of Celeron, New York. And the statue depicted this, this climactic, iconic scene, and I want to look at it, and uh, there it is. The townspeople dubbed this Scary Lucy. <laughs> scary Lucy. Now, I just want you to think. You see the actual scene from the, from the show, and you see the recreation. I want to ask you, how do you think he did? Not very good. Let me show you this person's opinion of how he did. Let's look at the next slide. Okay. When I look at that, 
I am like 99% sure that was a dad that was holding that baby up by Scary Lucy. Because about every dad looks at that and goes, oh, that's hilarious. And every mom goes, why would you do that to a poor child? So, you know, usually it's a, a guy who does that. So, but uh, the, the townspeople said, we cannot have, you know, our golden girl represented in our town with that Scary Lucy. So they actually had a, a campaigns and everything, and they ended up getting another sculpture uh, of her. And the lady did it, and I'll show you this new one. Let's look at the new one, and it is lovely. Now, isn't that better? Isn't that better? They said we cannot have, you know, a legend being represented with the scary Lucy. And so they, they named this one the new Lucy or the lovely Lucy, and now she's a new creation. And I think of that, and I think, man, isn't it good that God can re-sculpt us? Isn't it good that he can recreate us, he can make us new, he can take what's old and scary and make it good and make it beautiful. And so thank God that we are, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, if that concept makes your mind retreat and you think, I just, it's just too glorious of a thought, I can't get my mind around, it's probably because of one of two things. One, it's because you remember your old self. And you say, how, how could I be passionately loved by God? How could I be a new cre creation? How can my sins be forgiven? How could I be the righteous of God? Because you know your past. And you say, my old nature, I, can't, I don't deserve that. But there's very something interesting about us human beings. Let's say you lived crazy, wild, sinful criminal from age 20 to age 30. Then you finally decided to get your act together a little bit. And from 30 to 40, you didn't get saved, you didn't become a Christian, but you became a much better citizen, cleaned up your act, quit performing criminal deeds, got off some drugs and whatever, and, and now you come to know Jesus, sometimes we think, well, I can believe he'll forgive me because that was 10 years ago. I mean, even people who hated me have forgiven me, you know, because I've, I've lived differently for 10 years, so oh, I now know that I'm a worthy candidate for salvation. No, you're no more worthy than you were back when you were involved in all that. It's something in our minds. But old and past happens like that. What I said 10 minutes ago is the past. It doesn't have to be 10 years ago. It can be 10 minutes ago. One of the other things that keeps us from believing is the fact that we know what we did today. So we think, I understand that God forgave my old self, but man, today, yesterday, my failures, my, my, my mistakes, my behavior, it just, it's, it's not good. And so how could all this be true about me because I know myself so well? Well, because this, when Jesus looks at you, if you're a Christian, when Jesus looks at you, let's say it like this. When the Father looks at you, he sees a son. When the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. When the Father looks at you as a Christian, he sees the righteousness of God. You're clothed in that. I started thinking, what would be an example of that? Because, you know, somebody can put on a, an outfit or a suit or do whatever, but that's not it. I started thinking, you ever see a beekeeper? How they're like totally covered? Or how about a hazmat suit? You ever see a person in a hazmat suit? I mean, their, their head's covered, they, they got total cover on the body, their gloves, their feet, everything, totally covered. If you saw 10 people in a hazmat suit, you wouldn't know who they were. You'd just know they're hazmat people. When Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees Je Jesus. Actually, that's a great example. Jesus is an awesome hazmat suit for us because there's a lot of hazardous material in the world, and he, we're covered in him, and when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees 
his righteousness, not your own. Which is exactly why Paul said, I love this this faith in Christ. And Paul was a really, really good rule keeper. And he said this, I'm so excited because I don't have to have a, a righteousness that's of my own that is from obeying the law. I have a righteousness that comes from faith, by faith in Jesus, which he says is far better. And Hebrews tells us that, that this covenant we have with Jesus is far better. And our high priest, Jesus, is far better than any high priest. And so we have this wonderful thing that God looks at us through through his eyes and sees Jesus. Now, I want to show you this scripturally, and I'm telling you, this is, this is critical to us really becoming who all God wants us to be because we have to see how, how we do life from. We've got to see this new creation living where it is birthed from, and it's from God, not from us. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. It's the same thing Paul taught the Corinthians. He's teaching the Ephesians. Different set of words. Which your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your minds. How you see things. How you think things. Let the word of God wash your mind. You were taught to put on the new self. Now I want you to see this new self. Which this is what Paul told the Corinthians too. This new self is created to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness, true holiness, not self-righteousness and self-holiness, not, not deceiving. This is true. This is real. We have clothed ourselves with God. And then he says to the Galatians in 3, 26 and 27, so in Christ Jesus, there it is again, not just I turned over a new leaf. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. I know I say this every time. The culture says we're all children of God. The Bible does not say that. The Gospel of John says when we receive Jesus, we become children of God. Galatians says we become children of God through faith in Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with whom? With Christ. You've clothed yourself with Christ. You've put on the hazmat suit. You've put on Christ. So if I put on Jesus and God sees Jesus, can I be any better than that? Now, I know you may be saying, well, I could sure clean up some things in my life. I bet you can. I can, you can too. And I'm not diminishing that. I just want you to know where our salvation comes from and where our, our confidence comes from, where our hope comes from. Because if I wake every, up every morning beat up as a failure, I'm going to live like a failure. That, that is my uh, biggest problem with the concept of, of uh, and you hear me say it, harp on it every now and then, where we say, we're, well, we're just old sinners saved by grace. I, it should be this, biblically, we were old sinners who have been saved by grace. And now we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Now you may say that's just splitting hairs on words. No, it's really not because you get a perception of who you are. I'm just an old sinner. You've heard me say it before. What do sinners do? They sin. So I, I'll have plenty of excuses to sin because that's just all I am. I'm just an old sinner. But if I'm in the righteousness of God in Christ, and I start getting that burnt into my mind and my heart, what do righteous people do? They live righteously. They do righteous things. It, it's, it's, a, it's not just a little tweak. It's a huge tweak to understand where we come from and what we do. Now, the tough thing is that you and I have been trained in the old covenant and in the new covenant. And I'm sad to say I'm sure I have taught a hybrid of that before too and we had to be very very careful of it and when I say the old covenant you may say what's that mean covenant's a, a churchy term or a legal term if you work in a legal office you've heard the word covenant a million times it's a contract 
And so in the Old Covenant, the contract was obey the rules, obey the laws, keep the commands. Now, there's benefits to doing that, but it's not a benefit that makes you more righteous or more saved. James, the brother of Jesus, writes that if we do the word of God, we'll be blessed in all of our deeds. It's something that happens naturally in the world around here, but it doesn't make you more saved or less saved. Does that make sense? There's benefits to, to a kind word turns away wrath, the Bible says. And if you've ever used that, you'll, you'll find out it's true. Now, that's natural. It doesn't make you more saved because you gave a kind word, but it may help cover a bad problem on planet Earth if we start practicing the principles of God. So there are rewards to the principles of God that show up in the natural realm, but they don't make you more saved or less saved or more righteous or less righteous. So this old covenant of keeping the law and obeying the law just seems right to us because we're taught that in everything in life. This is how life works. And so I'm not going to look at all these verses, but I'm going to mention them. You can jot them down, look them up later. I'm going to show you the Old Covenant as it's poured out into the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Covenant. In Deuteronomy 8, chapter, or Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, God instructs the people, hey, if you'll be careful, you've got to be careful, be careful, be careful to obey everything I commanded you. Do the things I tell you to do. And if you do those things, you will be blessed, you will increase, you will prosper, you, you will grow in this land that I swore to your forefathers. I made an oath to your ancestors that you would have. There's a key component of the Old Covenant. Do good, get good. Doesn't that make, it make, make sense to life? That's how we've always been taught about life. Do good, get good. Do right, be blessed. And then you jump forward 20 chapters later, and then the scripture says this. Now, if you're not careful to obey everything I command and follow all my decrees, then these curses will pursue you and overtake you. Ah, oh, do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That makes sense. We teach that in everything in life. We teach that in computer programming. Garbage in, garbage out. Put the right stuff in, you get the right stuff out. Put the bad stuff in, the bad stuff comes out. So it just seems to fit with life. But God's bigger than human life. And he has a real passion for us if we ever really understood. And I'm sure I don't come close to understanding it either, but we need to keep growing in this passion, this love he has for us. And in Deuteronomy, as I was reading and studying, I'm, oh my goodness, there you are, God. God. God's always got these little drops of the New Covenant all throughout the Old Testament. And if you ever want to see a movie, like say they don't have a movie completely done, so they can't make a trailer yet, they'll make something called a teaser. They'll take a few of the highlights of the movie as they're filming it, and they'll make a teaser. And so I'm reading through here, I say, okay, God, I see your teaser. I see, I see what you're up to. And you can jot it down, you can read it later in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, He's going to show us how this really works. Now, before we say that, I want, I want you to tell a problem with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, one of two things is going to happen. The, and the Old Covenant, I mean, obey the rules, keep the rules, follow the commands, do what's right. One of the problems is this. It'll, it'll result in one of two things. You will either develop what's called a self-righteousness, and you will think, I'm a really good person. And you'll always compare yourself to somebody who's not as good as you. So you can feel comfortable, I'm a really good person. Like I may say to myself, I'm really compassionate. I can tell you this, I will never compare my compassion to Mother Teresa. Never. If I did that, I'd be, I'm not compassionate at all. So we always look around and say, I think I'm better than most people. I'm really good. I'm doing great. No wonder I'm being blessed. God loves me so much because I'm so wonderful and I'm so incredible. But the Bible says, the Bible says in Romans 3.10 that there's no one righteous. 
And just in case you don't get it, the next sentence is, no, not one. Eight billion people on planet Earth. Outside of Jesus, there's no one righteous, no, not one. You can take somebody who does not know Jesus as their Savior, and they could be nicer and kinder and more charitable than you have ever been, and they're still in sin. They are not righteous because they outdid you in their good deeds. So there's none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that your best day, your righteousness is a filthy rags before God because we compare ourselves to God, not to one another. We compare ourselves to God. So we either get self-righteous and we get deceived, thinking I'm wonderful and all these blessings are coming upon me because I'm such a really good person, or the second thing happens, we get discouraged. You say to yourself, I think I'm going to become a religious person. I'm going to try to live right and do right, and I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and I'm going to set some goals, and I'm going to do this. And so you start trying to do the commands and the decrees and the obeys, and if you're really honest with yourself, you fail. And so after a few months of doing this, you say to yourself, I feel emotionally drained. I feel worse. I feel awful. I can't keep the commands. I can't follow the rules. I'm a failure. I, I'm, I'm no good. And so when that happens, there comes a fork in the road. The fork in the road is this, that you, you've tried and tried and tried to do the best you can. You can't do it. You're discouraged. You're a failure. You're a loser. That's what you're telling yourself. And so you say to yourself, I can't even handle this emotional trauma. I quit. I'm done. I'm not going to try to keep rules or go after God. But here's the solution you should come to. Paul came to the same point. Paul writes these words. He says, oh my goodness, what's going on with me? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I do want to do. I got this real desire in me to do right, but I can never seem to carry it out. And then he like, I picture him falling to his knees and he says, oh wretched man that I am. See, there, here's the conclusion. We need to, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Ah, oh, thanks be to God. I'm delivered through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So when the, you come to the fork in the road, go for Jesus. You just throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. And all of a sudden, he deals with that bondage of death that's in our lives. See, the Bible says there's different laws that operate. Uh, the scripture says there's the law of sin and death. The Bible says there's the law of the commandment. The Bible says there's the law of the spirit of life. So we want to operate in the law of the spirit of life. And so this little teaser we see here is that in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God comes to the people and he says, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. You're getting ready to move into the promised land. Remember they were rescued from Egypt. These are Israelites. They're Hebrews. They have spent 40 years in the desert. This new generation has risen up, said, you're going to move into the promised land, and I'm going to drive out your enemies before you. And when I do that, do not say, my righteousness and the uprightness of my heart has caused us to possess this land and have this victory. God said, no. There's two reasons this is happening. Number one, because of the utter wickedness of the people who are in the land you're going in. God was very patient. I won't teach that story. But generations went by, and finally their wickedness got so bad that God's using the Hebrews as an agent of judgment against these wicked people in Canaan. He said, that's the first reason. The second reason is because I swore an oath. I made a covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you would possess this land, and I'm going to honor that covenant. He said, those are the two things. But just so you get this straight, you have been nothing but a stiff-necked, 
hard-hearted, rebellious people. And you say, what's that have to do with the, the, <laughs> the gospel? Because God even blessed them beyond their obedience, beyond their rule-keeping. He, he wanted to keep a covenant. He created a covenant through Jesus, his son, and he's offered that covenant, that new agreement to all of us and said, if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth, if you believe on Jesus, you can be saved. That's a covenant he's made with us. And so all of a sudden, we're covered with his righteousness. And so he, he, the Hebrews were, the Hebrews were the best of the best people group on planet Earth compared to the Syrians that were in Nineveh and all these other people and the Canaanites who, who would offer their children and babies as, as sacrifices to their false gods. The Hebrews looked like shining stars when they were compared to everybody else, but when they were compared to God... They were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and rebellious. So if the best of the best on planet Earth is stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and rebellious, then we need some help. And that help comes in Jesus. So God has this covenant, and he wants us to move it in through Jesus. And, and there's something in us that says, no, I think I can do it on my own. You can't do it on your own. You've already tried. If you think you're succeeding, then you've stepped into self-righteousness. We don't even know how pure God is. I was amazed one time as a kid because there's a Bible doctrine. The first one is called sins of commission. Sins of commission are things where you do what's wrong by an act of your will that you knew was wrong. Those are active acts of sin. But then I discovered there's this whole other realm of sin called sin of omissions. And I thought, what in the world is that? I'm struggling with my commission sins, let alone my omission sins. Omission sins all the things God really would have wanted you to do that you didn't do. I was like, oh, wretched man that I am. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, so now I'm not just dealing with the things I do that are wrong. I'm dealing with the things I don't even know that I should be doing that God wants me to do that sin too. We need Jesus. So when you think, I'm really good, you're not that good. I don't even know how many thousands of times a day we may sin if we throw all those categories in. When we stack ourselves up against the perfect, beautiful, holy God. So I want you to know, we're not that good at working. We say, I'm going to work it. I'm going to make it happen. But we're not that good. I see this every year at, um, at daylight savings time. And daylight savings time we spring forward an hour, and we lose an hour of sleep. Every year I read this stuff. This blows me away. And they say, oh, my goodness, that loss of an hour of sleep has caused so much loss of productivity. It's costing our nation $434 million in lost productivity. And I'm thinking, really? Okay, I just another poll. Help me out here. There's, you're not better one way or the other. I just want to know. The concept is, is that... On Saturday night, Sunday morning, we lost an hour of sleep. And that's still wiping us out so much on Monday that we can't hardly even work. Said so it may cost you some money because your productivity might be down. and Maybe you get paid by commission or by sales or by productivity and you can't produce enough because you are wiped out from daylight savings time. Or maybe you're so wiped out you call in sick and you didn't even have a sick day so you lost a day's worth of pay. Now I want to ask a question. It seems like this study believes that everyone gets the same amount of sleep every night all year long. 
Now, if you do, that's cool, but I just want to show of hands. How many of you get the exact same amount of sleep almost every single night, all year long, like clockwork? Be proud of it if you do. Raise your hand up high. How many of you do that? Oh, come on, somebody, surely. No one? I figured there'd be three or four or five. Okay, you, the crazy person. Okay, so now that's the way we're supposed to sleep. Every study I've ever read, go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, get the same amount of sleep. But in the real world, no one does that. You lose two hours here, an hour there, you gain one here, you're all over the map, you know, whoever. So I'm thinking to myself that the people who do the survey, they come into work on Monday morning after daylight savings time, and they watch the people's productivity, and they say, these slackers aren't doing anything. What I want to tell them, that's every Monday morning. That's not the Monday morning after daylight savings time. That's every Monday morning. And so they go, this is costing us a fortune. So then I think logically, well, if that's the case, then after we fall back in the, in the fall, you know that, they ought to do another study. Oh, my goodness, these people woke up with such vim and vigor. They got into work early. Their production increased. Everything was awesome. Everything grew. We made all that money back. I don't think that's the way it works. So we're not that good at working, people. I just want you to know that. So when you think, I'm going to work at being righteous, you're not going to succeed. You're going to have to avail yourself to the mercy of Jesus. You will not find anywhere in the Christian message that your behavior creates your righteousness or your holiness, or that your behavior enhances or reduces your righteousness or holiness. Now, I know, don't get nervous. You're going to think, oh, but how are we going to behave? Well, we might could learn how to behave because we love Jesus. Just a crazy idea, just a crazy idea. But look at what those who taught in the scriptures say. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from whom? It's not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not by what? Works. It's not by works, so no one can boast. No one can brag about this. It's, it's a gift from God. So anytime we think, oh yeah, I'm earning it. No, let's see what the Bible says. Galatians 3, 5 says, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you are such a good rule keeper? When we come here, the testimonies that we hear, do we say, oh, they must be really good rule keepers? I think about everybody who would share a testimony of God's goodness to them would say, eh, not that great of a rule keeper. I love Jesus, I'm trying to trust Jesus. But none of us, unless we're self-righteous, think we're really great rule keepers. But here it says, does God give you his Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law, because you're good law keepers? The next three words with an exclamation point is, of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard. You just heard a message today. Are you going to believe it? If you're going to believe it, then maybe what happened to the Galatians might happen to you and us. God would pour out his spirit and work miracles among us. Well, he's never going to do that until we come in here and we pray six hours every day at this altar, seven days a week. First of all, I'd be thrilled with that. That wasn't meant to be negative. But what are we doing? We're saying, we're going to earn the Holy Spirit and we're going to earn his miracles. Am I for prayer? Please don't take that to wrong conclusion. Yeah, of course I am. But as soon as I say, I got a strategy to make this happen, I will make this happen. John, um, um, Jack Hayford. Jack Hayford had a little church that just exploded. And he said this. He said, I never get asked to speak at church growth conferences. 
Because what happened one day is he was pastoring a church of about 80 people, and he just he said, I thought I'd spend all my life pastoring a church of 80 to 100 people, which is a noble cause, because that's what all pastors thought they would do until the big mega church movement came, which I'm not opposed to, actually, the, the mega church movement. But he said he walked into his sanctuary one day, and he saw, like, this glitter around there. And he said he actually blinked a couple times and thought, huh. And uh, the Lord said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on this house, and I'm going to increase it. And he said, you think I would have done something amazing, but I went, okay. And he said, he just walked out, and he's done for his day, and he shut out the lights and went home. And the very next week, they went from their average 80 to like 120, with no, no program, no special service. And he actually chronicles in his book, Glory on, on, on His House, and he starts, they have this massive growth. Now, you can go to church growth conferences, there are all kinds of great ideas. And by the way, I'm not opposed to learning how to do things better, are you? I'm not opposed to that. I am opposed to, we're going to earn. We're going to earn people getting saved around here. We're going to do this and that. No, he just said God's up to something and God did something. Yes, grow, learn, be better at what you do, improve yourself. Absolutely. I want to be a better witness. I want to make sure our church makes a difference. But I do want to say this, we can't earn it. We can't earn it. We, we need to believe. He can work miracles among us and, and pour out his spirit because we believe what we heard. We believe what we heard. Now, the danger is always... Well, Tracy, if what you're saying is true, you're just saying it doesn't matter how we live. First of all, it's not what I'm saying, but how you live doesn't earn or increase your salvation. So we can just live however we want? Well, first of all, you are living however you want anyway. You know, I could say, well, no, you can't. Well, you are. We're living however we want anyway. I just hope we would want to live better, and so then we can live on that level how we want better. Well, then there's no need to deny us any sinful pleasure because it doesn't matter. It does matter, but I'm telling you right now, it doesn't make you more saved or less saved. I'm, I'm telling you, it's not like, I was really good today, so I'm really saved. Oh, man, I had a horrible day. I'm lost. I'm going to hell. I had a good day. I'm back going to heaven. Bad day, going to hell. That, Jesus is not a schizophrenic who's out there saying, I can't figure out whether they're saved, lost, whatever. You know, should we be good? Yes, we should be good. And we will get to that message, okay? For those of you who are nervous, or maybe you're nervous, I'm going to get to that message, you know, how to be good and how to, how to live right. I just want you to know that my behavior, your behavior, doesn't make Jesus more righteous or less righteous. It doesn't make my salvation more real or less real. And what's beautiful about that is I can start now living from a different perspective at how I do life. The fact that my salvation, my righteousness, my holiness, my goodness, my forgiveness of sins does not hinge on me is very comforting. It does not hinge or hang on my best day or worst day. It does not hang on, on my flawless obedience. It hangs on Jesus' flawless obedience. He was flawlessly obedient. And the Bible says this about him. It says he, he took his blood. There's, there's a tabernacle, a temple in heaven. The one on earth was a replica. That's what the Bible says. And he went into the mercy seat. He took his blood. He sprinkled it on the mercy seat in heaven. And he proclaimed that his blood would bring cleansing and forgiveness and salvation and righteousness for anyone, anyone who would turn to him. And he was perfect. He was obedient. He was flawless. He did it all. And the Bible says that when our high priest did that, he walked over and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
and it was done. It was done. And then it says this. I want to make sure these people get it. He said this. It said, our high priest has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Perfect forever. Not perfect till your next bad day. Perfect forever. Perfect forever. Oh, my goodness. When I read the Old Testament, it's such a beautiful backstory, And it so points to Jesus. I love the Old Testament. I love how you see Jesus cropping up all in there. He made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So this afternoon, when I have a, a, a spiritual moment, in the church world, there's a fancy thing called a sacrament. A sacrament is something, and they vary from church to church. A sacrament is something we say, we don't have to do this to go to heaven, but God commissioned it. Like we would call, other churches would be different, but our church would say that Holy Communion is a sacrament. If you never took Holy Communion, you wouldn't stand before God and say, well, I'm sorry, you've got to go to hell. You never took communion. It's a sacrament, something we should do. Well, every Sunday afternoon, I have a, a Holy Sacrament. It's called, it's called a Sunday afternoon nap. And when I wake up from that Sunday afternoon nap, that ain't a lie, is it? Probably probably 50 out of 52 weeks. And when I wake up from that nap, guess what? I'm holy and righteous. And when I wake up on Monday morning, I'm holy and righteous. And the finished work of Jesus has, has made me new and made you new. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. He was the faithful high priest who never sinned, who gave his life, who rose again, who completed it all. And the Bible says that he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled them all. And he made, then he imputed that to us. He now, look, God looks at us as people who have fulfilled every righteous command he's ever given. This is what the Bible says. So as we pray, refresh your mind on that. Refresh your mind on his righteousness in you. And if you're here today and you're saying, Tracy, I don't know Jesus. When I hear what you preach today, I mean, I've gone to church and I've tried to keep some rules and I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never experienced that. Then today's your day to experience that. And so I want to encourage you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that you get that so rooted into our hearts and minds that we wake up every day saying, I'm righteous and I'm going to go live like it. I'm holy. I'm going to go live like it. I'm forgiven. I'm going to go live like it. And Lord, we'll make a difference in the world around us. Thank you, faithful high priest Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Now I want to ask why we keep an attitude of prayer. Is there anyone here today who would say, Tracy, I'm not a Christian, but I want to be one. I'm not in Christ. I've been in church, but I'm not in Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you raise your hand up high? I want to say a prayer for you. Anyone at all saying, I don't know him, but I I want to know him. Raise that hand up high and do it quickly. Anyone here today saying, I know I'm a Christian, but I just want to make a fresh commitment to him. That message just made me want to love him more, and I just knew new beginning for me. haven't really been heading down the path I ought to, so it's a new start for me. Anybody in that situation or boat say, hey, I just want to make a fresh commitment to Jesus today. Anyone? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Mm. Father, we thank you for your goodness. 
We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name.